And welcome to Slate's Spoiler Specials. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic. And today I am joined by senior editor of Slate, Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello, Dana. Today we are spoiling Avatar The Way of Water, the very long awaited, 13 years awaited sequel to the James Cameron mega blockbuster Avatar. So this is a lot of movie and we don't have a long time to talk about it, Sam. This is a three hour and 10 minute long film, which is something very important to know when you put down your extra money for the ticket to go in and see it. It's quite a commitment. So we're going to have to skim somewhat through the story. But this is a movie in which I don't think that that's that big of a deal, because I think you'll agree with me that Avatar The Way of Water is a film that is all about vibes, (laughs) and in which we can get through the plot points themselves fairly rapidly. Yeah, this is, I mean, it is a lot of movie, as you say, it is long, it is expensive. I don't think you will wonder watching it where any of that money went. It's It is all on the screen, but it is not a movie that is stuffed with plot. It is full of other things. It's something that Cameron, I think James Cameron, is really great at as a director. I mean, in a way, Titanic is similar. A gigantic movie, right? Stuffed with characters, stuffed with twists and so forth. But when it really comes down to it, it's almost stick figure simple in its in its storytelling. And it really is all about world building and establishing a space that the audience is wowed by and, you know, and wants to explore along with him. Something else I was thinking about James Cameron going into this movie is that he in the past has proven himself a master not only of, you know, getting people into seats for these mega blockbuster crowd event movies, but he's really good at sequels, usually. I mean, you could easily argue that Terminator 2 is a better, more important, smarter movie than Terminator 1. I love both those movies, but Terminator 2 really pushes it in new directions, right? In terms of the technology and and even the the kind of thinking that he's doing in it. And same thing with Alien and Aliens. So he's really setting himself up with The Way of Water because I, for one, was going and thinking, I hope I like this better than the first Avatar, which wowed me at the time, but is one of those movies that disappeared the minute I finished watching it. Yeah, I mean, I think Aliens is really kind of the blueprint for so many modern sequels. There's a famous story about that where Cameron went in to pitch it and he just wrote the word alien on a dry erase board and then wrote an S after it and then wrote two vertical lines through the S to turn it into a dollar sign. I mean, this is basically <laughs> avatars. You know, there are more bigger things in this, but they're also not just characters, but there are more environments, more technologies more of everything that uh, you loved of the first one if you didn't love it, um, probably more of the things that you didn't like if you didn't. Yeah, in a way, it's almost like James Cameron is inviting you into where his brain has been for the past 13 years, which is really in Avatar land. You know, this is the first film he's made in 13 years. And all of that time, he's been either developing this sequel and the other sequel, which he shot simultaneously. And supposedly, there are two more sequels to come, although we better hope that he's keeping himself in good shape because he only has so long to live to make all these sequels. And he's been developing Avatar content for Disney theme parks and, you know, rides and things like that. Clearly, this world has really stolen his heart and he has been dwelling in it for a long time. This is the moment where he's revealing kind of the new world building that he's been doing within himself to all the rest of us. So as I always do in spoiler specials, let me just start off by asking, did you like this? 
I did. As we will talk about, I think this is shot with a sort of bleeding edge technology called HFR or high frame rate, um, which kind of looks like a a video game or a soap opera, depending on your point of view. I really kind of hate that. And I spent probably the first half of this movie um, just kind of inuring myself to that. The good news is that, I suppose this is good news, is that, you know, halfway through the movie, you still have an hour and a half of movie left. And a lot of that you spend in the ocean with all sorts of fantastical sea creatures. And that stuff is just really beautiful and engrossing. Um, there's also probably the last hour of the movie is divided to a big sort of battle scene that just nobody does better than James Cameron. Certainly at this point, I don't even know if anyone is really in his class. So, you know, it's kind of goofy. I hated the way it looked at first. And by the end, I was, I think, literally pumping my fist and like yelling out loud when some of the bad guys were getting killed. So, I mean, he got me good. What can I say? So you wrote a whole piece for Slate about the high frame rate and also about the various viewing modes for Avatar. And we won't get into all of that right now, but I think it's worth mentioning that, yeah, one of the reasons the tickets to this cost a premium price is that there's all kinds of different ways you can see it. I think they're all in 3D, though. Is that correct? No matter what you choose, you're going to have the glasses? I mean, there are 2D versions of it. I think there are 3D non-HFR versions of it, although Cameron is so far ahead of the curve technology-wise that like half the movie theaters aren't even listing precisely how they're showing it. So I think the only way to really find out is to go up and if you can find a human being working in a movie theater who knows what they're showing, ask them. But yeah, I, I think in general, it's safest to say that I think you want the biggest, best, probably most expensive you experience you can get with this because otherwise you're just going to be left with kind of watching it on a big TV with the plot and characters. And that is not what you are going to this movie for. Absolutely not. I mean, that's one thing you have to say about this movie. If you're someone who loves movie theaters and wants them to survive, maybe you won't even like this movie, but maybe its success will help people to keep going to the movies and it will subsidize other films. I mean, I'm with you. I really, in both cases, I think is going to be the same as the first Avatar, was wowed while it was unscrolling in front of me, walked out, you know, with my eyes spinning like pinwheels, and then almost immediately forgot the story (laughs) and don't really feel a need to see it again because it was so experiential that now that I've had the experience, it'll stay with me. One thing this movie does that's really smart is I think, you know, everybody sort of famously forgot the plot, the characters, nobody can name who Sam Worthington's playing, whatever. But this movie starts by reintroducing us not to the characters, but by places from the first movie, like the the Hallelujah Mountains, which are these sort of floating mountains up in the sky with these big stone rings around them. And it really reminds you that, like, you may not remember any of the people from the first movie or what happened, but I think you remember the place and the feeling of that. And that is really, the sell for this movie is really you're going back to Pandora. It's not really you get to see Jake Sully and Natiri and whoever else again, but it's just getting back into that environment. Yeah, you're right. It should be called Pandora in a way and not Avatar because that, you know, utopian planet it takes place on and the love that he clearly feels Cameron and his characters feel for that planet is really the driving story of the movie. It's almost as if the characters are an afterthought. But that said, we should get to the characters. (laughs) Well, first of all, who Jake Scully is and why he's called an Avatar, because all of that stuff is so hastily dispatched at the beginning of this movie that if you hadn't seen the first one, I think you'd be quite confused as to what the reality of this, this blue cat person is. Jake Sully is a human being who um, was able to inhabit this, it's a human Navi hybrid, the Navi are the blue creatures on this alien planet of Pandora, um, that then, like in a video game, is sort of an avatar that he can inhabit through this technology. And at the end of the first movie, basically the whole planet is connected by this sort of like biological internet, I guess. Um, So he uses that um, to permanently transport his consciousness into this avatar body 
I don't know what happens to his human body, but it's just gone, no longer important. So he has now spent the intervening time between the movies, which is 15, 20 years, I don't think they say exactly, living among this Navi tribe in this sort of Amazon rainforest. He's had several kids, um, adopted a couple of others, and basically they've just been kind of living their happy forest life until the sky people, um, the bad Uh, humans from the first movie come back. We are the bad guys in all these movies. And here is where we get uh, another data dump about a an avatar and a body switch and somebody who transports their consciousness into another body that I found kind of confusing and had to go home and research. But the main villain from this movie, Colonel Miles Quaritch, is also the main villain from the first movie, even though he died at the end of that movie. Because thanks to Avatar-era technology, he could transport his consciousness into a Navi body himself. So he is now a big blue cat bad guy, you know, just as they are big blue cat good guys. And all of that is so hastily explained that you really don't even need to understand it. I mean, in a way, I think that's a flaw of this movie philosophically is that it no longer seems concerned as the first one did in its sort of early 2000s, you know, 2009 way about the possibility of transporting one's consciousness and what it is to inhabit an avatar versus to be oneself. If you remember from the first movie, Jake Sully is a paraplegic, right? And so part of why he wants to leave his body is to have this body that has some abilities that his human body doesn't. All of those thoughts about, you know, what it is to inhabit a consciousness are kind of gone because we really, by the time the slate is wiped clean and the villain is reincarnated as a Navi, just have a bunch of big blue guys fighting each other. Yeah, there are two actors whose characters were killed in the first movie who come back here. And one is Stephen Lang, as you mentioned, who plays the villain again. Uh, The other is Sigourney Weaver, who played sort of, you know, human scientist in the first movie. Um, also had an avatar body. She comes back playing a, a teenage girl in this movie. And the real reason they're back is because James Cameron likes them and they're great actors. And like, because of this technology, you can bring them back as, as many different characters as you want to. And so he has. I love the age-blind casting of having Sigourney Weaver play a teenager and also be motion-captured as a teenager. And she's one of the best characters in a movie that in which characters are not the strong point. But Kiri, this teenage girl that she plays, I think is the most differentiated of the kids, the one who seems to have the most individual character. And I really like her. I will admit that I don't understand why Sigourney Weaver's original character is kept floating in a tank if she's dead. Like, why don't they just perform what other rituals the Navis perform when someone dies? But maybe that will be explained in a later film and her her older self will get reincarnated as well. But I think now we've sort of established the first act of the movie, really, right? We're on Pandora, the sky people are back, and really this becomes a vengeance story because Miles Korich, our villain, just hates Jake Sully and wants him dead. I mean, it seems like in addition to wanting to extract the planet's resources and being the kind of environmental bad guys that they already were in the first movie, the humans are also just criminals who are after our good guy, uh, Jake Sully, and his family. So that necessitates the second act of the movie, which is all about the Sullys relocating to a different part of Pandora. And here, to me, is where the movie gets magical. And it's my favorite part, which is this long and arguably pretty static middle segment where we almost forget that the villains are there. It's like they're taking a while settling in because they essentially disappear from the movie for, I don't know, I wouldn't be able to say exactly how long, but it feels like 40 minutes or something like that, that we are just exploring the new 
part of Pandora that we moved to, which is the land of the Metcayena people, these seaside tribe that the Sullys take refuge with. You want to talk a little bit about this Metcayena stretch? And, and tell me if you agree with me that that's the funnest part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think this is both sort of the most fun part of the movie and the part where I really started to sink into it. And this is, I think, where this HFR technology, which allows this sort of almost hyper-real clarity to the image, um, really starts to pay off because it looks kind of weird on land. Um, movements look weird. If, I mean, if you're used to playing a lot of video games, they will look the way that you're used to those figures moving. But for you know, people who like how movies have looked for a hundred plus years. It looks weird. And to me, it's more like being on the set of a movie, watching a movie get made than actually watching the movie. You know, I don't see the characters, I see the actors playing them. Exactly. I always feel that way about the high frame rate stuff with The Hobbit too, where it's sort of like, did somebody take some phone footage on the set or something? It just has a cheap, tacky look to it that it's strange to me that it's considered the luxury version of movie making when it looks less luxurious than something with a little grain to it. Right. But there's something that um, Fanny Bryce said about uh, the sort of old Hollywood star Esther Williams, who was sort of famous for making swimming pictures, um, which is that, you know, on land, she was nothing but wet. She's a star. And that is how I feel about this technique. Like once the camera goes under the water, these Metcayana people can hold their breath for minutes at a time. A lot of the actors learn to do the same thing. There are sort of sea snakes and serpents and dragonflies and giant whales. I, you know, I literally was sitting there watching this movie telling myself, I've been thinking through and then telling myself, nothing you see on screen right now is real. Not a thing exists in the real world. This is like a fake whale going through fake water and a fake ocean in front of a fake sun. And my brain was just like, no, that you're wrong. This is, I can see it. It's real. I could not convince myself that it wasn't real, even though I know that. And it's also the dimensionality. I completely agree that it's only underwater, that that high frame rate stuff and the 3D really adds anything to the movie rather than subtracts. But then it really adds. I mean, it's not just that there's crisp definition and kind of realistic contours to things, but there's incredible depth, you know, which I also remember from the first Avatar movie that there'd be those kind of floating, I don't know what they are, but the kind of floating specks in the air, right? And of course, in the water, you can have all the more layers of floating things. You can have schools of fish and waving fronds and all of this stuff. And there's just just this just trippy hyper realness to those sections that works incredibly, incredibly well. And we know, I mean, going back to the abyss, like James Cameron loves the ocean. I mean, he said that he basically came up with the idea for Titanic because he wanted an excuse to spend a bunch of a movie studio's money on visiting the wreck of the Titanic in a submersible. He spent a bunch of the money that he made on that movie on you know, staging underwater expeditions and then making documentaries about them. Like he just loves the stuff. And this movie is so much a product of his love and, and really like reverence, rapturous engagement with that environment. Right. And so the, we have proxies that are being exposed to that environment the way he's exposing it, us, the, the viewers, to it, which is this pack of teenagers, a combination of the kids of the Solis that we mentioned and some of these Metcayena, you know, the, the seagoing people's teenagers. And there's also just a funny element to this part of the movie where it sort of becomes almost like a high school romance, teen drama, sort of CW series, but underwater. And uh, and we really leave behind not only the, the warfaring antics of the adults, but, you know, everything about the above water world and just spend a long time watching these teenagers essentially dare each other to go further and further out into the ocean exploring. And I think at this point, we need to mention the Tulkun, the non-human and non-Navi characters that I think are really the best thing about the movie. They're these whale-like creatures. They're essentially whales, but they have four eyes. They have 
psychic abilities so that they can communicate wordlessly with people once they've sort of bonded with inhabitants of the planet. They have an important role in the story. They have this ability to bond with Navi above the surface, and they individually bond. Like, you get your Tulkun, and you make this biological psychic bond with it, and then it becomes your protector. And they become, or one of them anyway, becomes really essential later on in helping the human characters get out of various jams that they're in. Okay, Sam, I'm going to take a quick break from our conversation. We'll be right back with you after this. If you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get an ad-free experience across the network and exclusive content on many shows. You'll also be supporting the work we do here on Spoiler Specials. Sign up now at slate.com slash spoiler plus to help support our work. All right, Sam, back to Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Teach us more about this way of water you speak of. I want to hear what you think of the whales um, and whether you agree with me that's the best part of the movie and, and just specifically sort of what you grooved on most about the Tulkun. I mean, there is a highly specific moment in this movie when I knew that I was on board and that is exactly 90 minutes into the movie, I can say, because I've seen it twice and I checked my watch. Um, it is when um, one of Jake's sons sort of goes off. He meets up with this sort of outcast Tulkun whale who has also been exiled from its pod. And he is talking to it in the way that, you know, people talk to animals in movies, like the way you talk to Lassie. Uh, you know, what is it, boy? What's going on? Um, and you think, okay, that's, that's the dynamic here. And, you know, and the whale makes some noise, but, you know, dogs bark back at people and that's it. Then, you know, he says, he notices the whale's missing a fin. He says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, like what happened to you? And the whale makes a noise back at him and the whale's line is subtitled. It says, it's too painful. And I'm like, okay, we are subtitling whales. We are all in, like, let's go. <laughs> I agree. That was the best. And also the fact that the whale says it's too painful and just leaves it at that. And it's not until a good hour later in the movie that we actually learn what did happen that chopped his fin off. I just love that the whale needed his space at that moment. <laughs> he needed to set a boundary and he said it. But is that true that that's his first line? That's the moment you learn that he's psychically communicating with the boy? That is the moment. I mean, they sort of seem like they're communicating beforehand, but then that's when the movie's like, no, this is actual speech. Like, these are actual words that are being spoken, and the human understands them, and these are, like, complete sentences being exchanged back and forth between these two beings. And, you know, the first movie had this sort of idea that every creature on Pandora is, you know, connected by this sort of bioelectrical network, which is also Awa, which is kind of the, their god, but also the spirit of the planet. It did not get to the point where this is sort of, like, Literal like speech conversation between them. So that is just that that is some raising the stakes for you right there. That's some sequel making. That actually speaks well to what James Cameron can do better than anyone else, which is simultaneously be utterly hokey and silly, right? And just really engage you and make you want more and more. So I think almost every review I've read of this movie, and mine certainly sounds like this, is both, wow, this is dopey as hell, and this is fabulous, you've got to go see it in the theater. I mean, one of his real virtues as a filmmaker, I think, I mean, he is just, he's incredibly uncool. You know, he is not every other sort of franchise movie now kind of wants to let you know that, like, it's in on the joke and is always kind of winking and nudging you. And we know that we're repurposing IP and we're all familiar with these tropes, but we have to use them anyway. And James Cameron's just like, nope, there's nothing like kind of hip or, or even necessarily like sophisticated about it. He just like really believes this stuff. And if you are going to go along for this ride, you, you know, you must believe a whale can talk. 
Right. There's no winky self-awareness whatsoever, right? There really is just a complete immersion in the story. And I love his all-in-ness, but at the same time, that leads me to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is whether his spirituality and his intense reverence for this fictional planet he's created does sometimes border on, I mean, we, we can definitely say that it sometimes borders on the simply overly earnestly cringy, but does it at times also border on exoticization and idealization of these, you know, kind of racialized Navi tribes. I mean, I especially noticed this time, and obviously we are watching this movie in 2022 in a different world in terms of how we think about, you know, racial representation than we did back in 2009. But I was noticing the cornrows on the Navi women, right? The accents work, which is really all over the place. For one thing, there's this age difference in accents, almost as if it's an immigrant story, right? Even though they're all Pandorans where the parents speak presumably Navi, right? But we're hearing it in English with these vague accents that seem to range from, as you note, Kate Winslet sounds vaguely African at times. We have Cliff Curtis, who's a Maori actor, playing some sort of accent with his tribal chief. And all the kids basically speak like they're in, you know, like a John Hughes (laughs) suburban teen movie from the 80s. They all speak in this kind of dated teen slang with lots of dudes and bros. And Yeah, I think, I mean, it might technically be the second uh, English line we hear in the movie, but there's a kind of a Hunt for Red October moment in this where the the Navi transitions into English. And, you know, the the voiceover is something like, well, I've been hearing Jake saying, like, well, I've been hearing this language for so long, it just sounds like English to me. The sort of audio bleed is over, like, two kids – one of whom is Sigourney Weaver's character, like fighting over a fish or something. And she is insulting her little brother and she calls him penis breath. Which is straight from E.T. I don't know. I mean, I just, I feel like as a white critic, I have trouble staking a real claim here, but there's something that makes me uncomfortable as much admiration as he has for the the planet about the seriousness with which he takes this this other, you know, this racial other that is a blue, and in the case of the sea people, green racial other, that he seems to treat as this kind of, you know, spiritual mentor or teacher and doesn't necessarily give those characters a lot of space to have their own non-idealized existence. Maybe the best defense you can make of it is that he is sort of an equal opportunity pillager and he is just kind of stealing from as many cultures with as many hands as he can muster. And he does have two co-screenwriters on this movie. So, you know, six hands is three times the stealing. I don't know. But um, yeah, so, you know, as you mentioned, Cliff Curtis plays kind of the chieftain of this Metcaino water tribe where the Jake and his family take refuge. They leave their old tribe to sort of keep them safe because they're being hunted down by Quaritch and a whole basically marine uh, Navi avatars. And so Cliff Curtis plays the chieftain. His character um, has sort of you know, tribal tattoos and things, which is he's a Maori actor. That seems fair enough. But then his wife, played by Kate Winslet, has the same thing. She sort of does like a haka dance at one point when they're going into battle. And um, I mean, there's not literally not an atom of actual Kate Winslet in this movie anywhere. She is just sort of inhabiting this digital blue body. I feel it like, as with animation, like it doesn't, you don't have to have a sort of strictly one-to-one correspondence between the actor and the character they're playing. It's fine for Sigourney Weaver is not only like fine as a teenage girl, she's like great. She may be the best thing in the movie, but there is at the very least a kind of weirdness, like a hinkiness to this um, that you know, I can't like make excuses for it. Just kind of part of being all in on the movie is just kind of either going along with that or pushing it aside so you can enjoy the rest of it. But it is, it's, you know, it's the same. If you had an issue with it in the first movie, you would be completely right to have the same issue with it here. 
one thing you can say is that it's not the case that, you know, the earthling characters or the white characters have more kind of individuality or individuated uh, writing than the Navi characters do. I mean, everybody is pretty much on stick figure level in this movie. Yeah, there basically aren't any humans in this movie. There's a couple really unimportant. When we get into the sort of like whaling sequences in the last third of the movie, there's a couple, you know, Australian whaling types, but all the characters in this movie are blue or green. Sam, I'm glad you mentioned the whaling action sequences because that's the next thing I want to get to. But before we do, here is one more word from our sponsor. All right, Sam, we're back. So you brought it up. I want you to get us into what I would think of as the last act of the movie. I guess it's about the last hour, although this movie is not entirely um, smooth in its pacing. I think, as I said, there's that long slack section in the middle, which is actually one of the most enjoyable parts, before suddenly everything ramps up and we get just a a really hard-going last hour that has at least two, maybe three, consecutive uh, action set pieces. And the first one, I think, is this one that's on a whaling vessel, um, which is chasing a whole pod of the Tulkun to get essentially the equivalent of ambergris on Pandora, which is some sort of gland secretion from whales that, I love this detail, is an anti-aging serum. (laughs) So I kind of wanted a spinoff about all the rich ladies back on Earth who are buying, you know, the whale brain juice to keep their faces fresh. But we get a little bit of of background about that, mainly as an excuse to have this really Moby Dick-worthy chase scene on, on board a boat. And I wanted to hear a couple of your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, the whole roughly last hour of the movie is just a string of action sequences. You know, every one of them I'm just watching and just the way they are sort of shot and put together is so meticulous and you know what's going on at every point. You are never trying to like figure out where a person or a, you know, a whale for that matter is in relation to the previous shot. So yeah, the whaling sequence is the first of these. Basically, it's a sort of interstellar riff on traditional whaling where they sort of trail the whale, they um, they hit it with balloons to make it float to the surface, and then they uh, hit it with a sort of explosive harpoon from underneath because these being super space whales are also armored on top. So they have to kind of come in um, under the armor plating underneath to blow them up. It's actually, it's a really interesting sequence for me because... Um, the uh, the whaling vessel is commanded by the sort of uh, you know hard bitten tough talking Australian played by uh, Brendan Cowell and there's this real sort of you know military precision to the way that he's dispatching all the teams take okay sub team get wet and whatever and it's exactly the kind of jargon that like the heroes in previous Cameron movies move like it's very much like the you know the the Marine platoon in Aliens but they're the bad guys now and they're eventually killing this whale I mean the the moment when um, the whale sort of surges out of the ocean in its death agonies is like the, the movie like really lingers on that in a pretty effective and, you know, really sort of heart pounding way. Um, and, you know, they're doing this awful thing. And I think it does make you sort of rethink your relationship to those kinds of characters in other movies. At the same time, also, it's like a pretty cool action sequence. Um, so, you know, I think it's like without making overly grand claims for the movie, I do think, you know, that is one of the more interesting things that's going on inside it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a moment when Cameron's investment in world building really pays off because that, you know, 40 minutes of slack time I was talking about where you're just wondrously exploring underwater reefs and talking to whales with teenagers and things like that 
really makes you love that world. You know, it's something that Jake Sully character says at one moment is is the most dangerous thing about Pandora is you may grow to love her too much, right? That's like an early establishing voiceover line. And that's kind of how all in the viewer is at that moment. So once you've gotten to know the Tulkuns and understand that they have philosophy and math, it's really hard to watch them murdered in that way. So it's a kind of Moby Dick if the whale himself were, you know, more <laughs> developed as a character, right? I mean, if Ahab was less important than Moby Dick himself. And speaking of Moby Dick, I just have to, to say that the way that that Australian boat commander finally dies, as long as we're spoiling things, was just the occasion of much whooping in the theater where I saw this movie. And it's another example of how great Cameron is at directing action. It's just that he knows just where to draw your eye. And essentially what happens, I mean, it's, it's, it's all in the way it's filmed, so it's not really the description, but it's just that Ahab style, this captain gets lashed to the mast or some part of his ship, right? He gets kind of wound up in these cables and as a whale is diving for him he gets thrown off the boat his arm is severed and you have this great shot of him and his severed arm flying together into the ocean never to be seen again it's just it's a really excellent villain dispatch all right, there's one more big scene to talk about uh, involving, once again, the family who isn't really involved in this in that whaling sequence we just talked about. But we get an even bigger and longer action sequence in multiple parts involving the final showdown between the Sullies and Miles Quaritch. I wanted to hear you on, you know, the, the capsizing and the, the final fate of all these characters in the last, I don't know, half hour or so. Yeah, I mean, very sort of briefly, the setup for the sequence is that this rogue whale that we've been talking about gets sort of targeted by the whaling vessels. Loak, who's the kind of rebellious son, goes off to save it. All the other kids kind of come with him. And while they're trying to get the sort of homing beacon out of this whale, this you know big ship with all the bad guys on it starts coming towards them. They radio back to their dad, and then all the sort of Metkayina people um, who've been kind of trying to stay out of this fight are like, you know, you know, these people killed a whale, like, that's it, it's on. So then there's this big, you know, clash of armies moment um, in the ocean and on top of the ship. And that's, you know, this large scale stuff that Cameron just does so well. I found myself emotionally engaged at the end of this movie, despite myself. I had been thinking the whole time, I'm loving the visuals, but these characters are absurd. I can't even tell apart the kids one from another. They're not well distinguished enough as characters. But when it came down to that moment when the kids have to save the parents, right? Because both Jake and Neytiri find themselves um, running out of oxygen, you know, trapped underneath the capsizing overturned ship. And it's their kids who need to swim into the rescue and, and take them out. There was something... There was something that really got to me about that part. And suddenly I was engaged not only in the survival of the characters, but in the passing of the torch to the next generation of heroes. You know, you get the feeling that he really believes in the stuff, that he is really invested in these big ideas. And I think um, certainly if you let yourself get swept up in that, I think it's really contagious. So let's just leave the, the Navi and the Sully family where they are at the end of this movie so that 13 years from now, when people have to yet again remember the relationships of all these characters, they know where we last saw them. In the end, the Sullys decide not to go back to their forest place of origin, but to settle in with the Metkayina. And as we see them at the end, minus one son, they are starting to integrate themselves permanently into that community. Yeah, this is a setup for, you know, as you mentioned, at least Avatar 3, Cameron said there would be a four and five. They've recently been talking about a six and seven, although those would, I think, would be directed by somebody else um, and probably 
you know, maybe come out in time for my great grandchildren to see them. But uh, it is mentioned very early in this movie. Most of it is built around this sort of search for this ambergris like substance, but it's mentioned early in the movie and then completely forgotten about that actually, like, the big plan now is for Earth humans to take over the entire planet of Pandora because Earth is dying and they just want to colonize the whole thing. That presumably is going to come back. And so the end of this movie is Jake deciding, um, you know, we can't sort of keep running away from these human people. Like, we have to stand and fight. And presumably there's going to be a lot of standing and fighting in future installments. Yeah, I kind of hope that, you know, the the environmentalist thrust of the first movie comes back a bit more. I mean, not that this movie isn't in spirit environmentalist with its love for the natural world that it creates, but it isn't consciously about a struggle to, you know, terraform Pandora. It really is essentially just a a bad guy versus good guy one-on-one struggle that then involves the family by association. So I kind of hope that the ideological stakes get raised for for the third movie, because I think that would maybe give it a bit more um, forward motion. That said, whatever Avatar 3 is, you know I'm going to be there with my eyeballs spinning like pinwheels once again when it comes out. And remembering nothing from this movie. Absolutely. Yep. So then I'll have to come back and listen to our conversation. I hope that you will join me 13 years from now, maybe when the next film comes out. But given the fact that these two sequels, the last two have been filmed simultaneously, maybe it'll be much sooner than that. No? Well, it's currently scheduled for December 20th, 2024. So it's a date then we won't have to completely hobble in on Keynes for our next conversation about Avatar, but I hope you'll join me then. All right, that's our show for today. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like our show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Christy Taiwo-Makanjula. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Audio at Slate. For Sam Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.